Welcome to Lessons from History. Today is the second part of a two-part series on public school rebellions. In the first part, we looked at some of the violent disorder that took place in some of the most prestigious public schools in Britain in the 18th and 19th centuries. In this episode, we're going to consider what the reaction was to these unruly schoolboys, how order was restored, and what the long-term consequences of these rebellions were. And just as a reminder, the research in this episode is based on my co-host Lizzie's PhD. So Lizzie, in our first episode, I was really intrigued by the fact that these rebellions, they were happening in public schools right across England. And there does seem to have been maybe an element of of these these ideas and these rebellions spreading. Now today, we worry a lot about social media and maybe the contagion that you get from social media that results in, in, in negative behaviour spreading virally, you would say nowadays amongst young young people. Was there a sense of contagion back then? Do you have a sense, even though there's no social media and there's no instant communications, is there still a sense of young people getting fired up by things that their peers in other schools are doing? Yeah, absolutely. In 1818, rebellions take place in four of the major public schools in succession. So Winchester, Eton, Charterhouse and Shrewsbury. And when the last of these ones takes place, Samuel Butler, who's who's the head at Shrewsbury, he writes to his fellow headmasters asking for advice. And Keat, who's the headmaster at Eton, writes back, he says, I'm very sorry to perceive that the contagion of rebellion has reached your school also. I am sorry too to be thought to have sufficient experience to be referred to as an authority on these occasions. Oh dear, Uh, oh dear, yeah. 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 And this is well before germ theory of disease is established, but people still use that language of contagion to conceptualise how behaviours might spread. And reading in particular was thought to be this great vector for contagion, people reading the wrong kind of material. And we've also got to remember, you know, that these stories of, of rebellions had kind of been passed down within the schools themselves. So boys who rebelled in Winchester in 1818 they would have known about the rebellion that took place 25 years earlier in 1793. You can see that they know about it because they're following some of some of their predecessors' examples. They've learnt from, from what they did. And, and may have had family. So it's, it's not just the contagion of peer groups, but there's also a contagion where maybe they're, they're, they're hearing what their fathers or their uncles did. And then there's an element of copying that. Yeah, because a lot of these schools are family schools. Grandfathers, fathers, sons, all going to the same school. So I've got another myth I'd like to bust. I don't think I'm going to get up to seven, Daisy. I'm sorry. I think it's really important to understand that although we're led to think of these schools as having unique characters and also to think of them, I think, quite often now as isolated environments, as these little bubbles, actually, there's plenty of outside influences acting on these pupils. They might regularly visit home. And even if they weren't able to travel there, they'd be writing. One of the teachers blamed the parents of some of the pupils for instigating the rebellions by sending their sons radical newspapers. And then pupils, they would have probably, most cases, had some friends in the locality. The 1793 rebellion at Winchester was ostensibly caused by the schoolmaster telling the pupils that they couldn't dine out on Easter Sunday with their, their friends. There's definitely local local networks there. And the headmasters, they have professional networks. So I started by reading out this, this letter from, from one headmaster to another. The, the pupils have their own networks, connections with boys at other schools. In the first episode, I talked about the Boswell brothers, you know, one's at Eton and one's at Westminster, and they're comparing notes. And you get that, but it's also quite common for, for pupils to attend more than one public school in this period. That's the sort of idea that seems strange to us now. But 
because a lot of attending school was about making social connections, why not double your advantage by going to Harrow and then Eton? So you so you may well do a few years at, at both and then you keep in touch with the friends that you've made and then maybe some of your friends go on to university and you keep in touch with them and they're mixing with pupils who've come on to Oxford and Cambridge from, from the other public schools. And actually, we've got a really good example in that. We've got some great correspondence from a boy called William Wood, who's at Winchester and gets involved in the Winchester Rebellion in 1818. And he writes to his friend, Walter Hook, who's only just left Winchester to go on to Oxford. And Wood, he writes to his friend and he describes the rebellion at Winchester in great detail, really, really goes into all, all the ins and outs. And his friend writes back and he says he'd run all over Oxford to share the news with a little bragging to all the men of Eton and Westminster that I know. (laughs) Brilliant. And uh, apparently the Etonians are full of admiration. The Westminsters are thunderstruck. Winchester will now be looked upon as the only school. It beats every other school in everything except Westminster in rowing. And eaten and putting on a neckcloth. Oh dear, you still get, even all these years ago, you still get all this uh, these bragging rights. <laughs> so you can see that these former pupils are, that are at Oxford think it's a great thing having a rebellion, right? It's, 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 it's really up to Winchester in, in their eye. And there's, like you say, there's, there's no instant communication. But actually, I'm, I'm always struck by how the, the post, I'm, I'm not sure quite at this era, it's probably still quite expensive, isn't it? But the post, the, the Royal Mail, Postal service is, is sometimes a lot better than you think. You do get news travelling quite fast. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, a constant stream of letters going backwards and forwards from, from home to the schools. And and people going around to share letters too with neighbours, letters being read quite widely. We think of letters now as being quite personal one-to-one, but actually often being read aloud to, to different people. Uh, the other thing is there's newspapers. And, and newspapers really growing over the, the period that we're talking about, so late 18th and, and early 19th century and local titles. The rebellion at Winchester in in May 1818 is reported in 30 different newspapers across the country from Carlisle to Cornwall. This sort of news really does spread. And when rebellion breaks out at at Eton later in the year, it's even covered by the Royal Jamaica Gazette. I mean, it takes a few months for the news to get out to Jamaica, but it's even spreading across the reaches of the empire. Um, Maybe I'm labouring a point a bit, but we, you know, nowadays you've got TikTok and you've got Twitter. And actually, you've got sort of something that's slower, but but similar in terms of it spreading amongst a network of, of people and everyone within that group rapidly becoming aware of the latest news and the latest rebellion. So you've got these rebellions happening. You've not just got the contagion you've talked about with the pupils, but actually you've got also the, the heads, as you said, the headmasters are in a bit of a network as well in talking about this. So how do all these schoolmasters react? Because they are facing a really quite significant threat not just their authority, but in some cases their personal safety. <laughs> and we talked about in the last episode, I talked about how I, I always felt when I was teaching, it might be unfashionable to say it, but actually one of the fascinating things about teaching is that you are constantly, almost day by day, faced with some of the classic problems of political philosophy, which is how do you maintain authority <laughs> and how do you respond to challenges to, to authority? And even in some of the, the best run schools, you will constantly be, be, be facing those issues and these headmasters at this time are absolutely facing that so they've, they've got the challenge of their authority and I suppose you've got two poles of, of response you can try and crack down and you can be the hard man obviously the upside of that is you maybe a, the force will eliminate the problem the downside is you can risk inflaming things further and then the other side is you can try and meet with the rebels and try and listen to their grievances and respond to some of them and take the sting out of the the, the issue and again that can work 
But again, the downside is there's a downside as well. You can risk emboldening the rebels. They ask for more. You undermine your own authority if you're seen to give in too much. So what tactics do these schoolmasters take? Do they go in hard or do they go, oh, hang on a minute, let's let's try and negotiate a little bit? There's a real mixture. There's a mixture of reactions. There are a couple of examples where headmasters essentially wallop the lead, the lead rebels. And I'm, I'm afraid that often does prove quite effective. So <laughs> Dr. Smith, who's one of the headmasters at Westminster, he cudgels, which is sort of basically hitting around the head with a stick. Sir Francis Burdett, who actually later goes on to become a radical politician. But in 1786, he's a proponent of this rebellion against the headmaster and gets yeah cudgeled around the head. And that promptly ends that rebellion. So, so that is one option and you do see a lot of corporal punishment applied so key to eaton famously flogged over 80 boys in a single day which must have been a huge physical feat probably up there with climbing the matterhorn because you know it's, it's really it's quite <laughs> demanding beating people's with with a cane or with a birch 80 students in one day yeah, yeah. <sighs> okay and does that work yeah it does it, it does actually work quite effectively there, there are problems with corporal punishment especially with older boys because being publicly beaten is seen to detract from one's honour and can have really serious implications for a people's reputation amongst their peers. And are they beaten in public? Mm. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah. It's, 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 it is a public spectacle at that point. That is part of the punishment. It's not just the violence. It's, as you say, it's the humiliation. It's the embarrassment. And there's some pretty serious incidents, not necessarily tied to pupil rebellion but uh, perhaps worth a little tangent here cases where boys are beaten there's often quite a lot of backward and forward this is a negotiation as you were saying these are often older men who are these headmasters and these are young healthy boys so there is an element of submission to being beaten you agree to being punished and some of the boys really protest and they take a long time before they agree there's a case of a boy at Westminster who gives in in the end and, and submits to being beaten. And then he goes back to his boarding house and he's very distressed, very upset. He and his roommate, who he's bunking in with, they go to sleep. And then when the roommate wakes up, he sees that the other boy's pillow is absolutely drenched in blood. And what's happened is in the night, the boy has taken a blade and... Uh, attempted to slit his throat or certainly self-harmed in a quite a serious way Th- this can actually be quite devastating the thing that the, the boys are being threatened with you know that the alternative to being publicly beaten is being expelled and expulsion is is the final weapon in a headmaster's arsenal and they're quite cautious about using it and sometimes they'll fudge the issue a little bit. They'll, they'll try and ask the parents to withdraw their sons rather than being forced to expel them. And, you know, actually, that's a practice that goes on in fee-paying schools today. There's often a little bit of backward and forward and, and you know, parents are urged to remove their children rather than having the decision of being expelled and the shame that goes with a, with a public expulsion. And public expulsion, it's, it's certainly felt at the time to be quite serious, you know, to have long-term repercussions that might prevent you from going to university or from joining the armed forces. Whether it really does have that impact is something that we'll talk about a bit later in this episode, but it, it, is, it is feared. It is feared. And I saw some other uh, bits, bits and bobs as well that you could be expelled, that might stop you going to university. You could also, if you're up for a scholarship at university, you could have that taken away. And that could be a big thing as well, because that they could be worth quite a lot of money. 
so you could you could lose out on on things there but we'll we'll come back to that and, and think about some of those so the masters do have some some tools they can use to to respond to these challenges and i just want to emphasize that they were often genuinely really quite distressed by these incidents i think it's really easy to think of these headmasters as oh keep going around flogging 80 boys you you know must have been a real sadist and but actually often they they're really upset about this, the, the the decision that they're being forced to make and it's a decision between protecting the reputation of their school and the other pupils in the school and potentially causing really long-term damage to a particular boy and you get this in their diaries and their letters it shows how heavily some of these decisions are weighing on their mind and can impact on their own careers too a few of these schoolmasters they do have careers that are harmed as a result of these rebellions perhaps not as many as you might think a lot of them are are, are still around and survive many many different quite serious rebellions and also i think the other thing you, you can you can miss as well is they live on site and I know that's true of a lot of boarding schools today, but we tend to think now of schools as, you know, most of them where you go home at the end of the day. They're living on site, everything's on site, and their families often are on site. So if you've got this level of physical violence, well, it's obviously going to affect you. If you're living in the midst of it, there's no there's no, no kind of respite almost, is there? One of the schoolmasters, someone called Williams, who's at Winchester at the time of the 1818 rebellion, he ends up being haunted by it later in his career. A few years later, he applies to be rector of the newly founded Edinburgh Academy. And then he suddenly finds all of this past conduct being forensically examined by the governing body of that school, which includes Sir Walter Scott. Wow. They're absolutely into what what was he doing in this 1818 rebellion? Yeah, yeah. How culpable is he? Is he a suitable person to, yeah. you know, is he headmaster material yeah. when he's been involved in this? Though actually, it's a slightly topical aside, one of his greatest crimes um, is felt to be the fact that he refused a boy permission to leave his classroom to use the lavatory. Oh, wow. That is very topical. And <laughs> and that's that's actually not the bit that the governor's objected to. What happens then is that the boy starts to cry. And Williams, uh, this teacher, is alleged to have remarked, Quo plus lacrimabis eo minus minges. Go on. Which... Um, <laughs> means the more you cry the less you piss <laughs> goodness okay this is one liner and that's the the real crime the kind of crudeness of this this phrase uttered to, to these delicate uttered in latin in, in latin but uh, you know expressed to these delicate schoolboys. well as you say there's a there's a lot of discussion now on social media and generally about about schools toilet rules nowadays you know should should students be allowed to interrupt a class to be able to, to for a toilet break or whatever it's a it's it's quite a hot topic and that, so that's amazing it was still a hot topic then and a teacher got in trouble for being being sarcastic basically sarcastic latin tag that's crazy isn't it that is really the the, the morphing change the other sort of similarities i felt with today there was one really interesting uh, bit you wrote about where you talked about some of the students wanting to be involved in the selection of the next head teacher oh yes that harrow and and that's interesting because there's a few schools now who will put students on interview panels for for teachers and then that's something that can also um, get a bit of controversy as well. Like, you know, should the students have a say in the teacher or head teacher? That causes issues too. And it reminded me, actually, I was on a, early in my career, I, was, I interviewed for a job and there was a pupil panel um, and I didn't get the job. 
And I often wonder, well, I don't know, was it the pupils? Uh, I don't know. But um, nobody came out and rioted on my behalf uh, <laughs> for not getting the job. But that happened at Harrow. Yeah, twice at Harrow. <laughs> the Harrovians in particular seem to think that they, they uh, should have more of a say in, in who the headmaster is. I think the, the reason it happens at Harrow is that you do have a bit more of a situation where that cult of personality can develop around particular markets. The reason the boys are so upset is that they have a preferred candidate who's already at the school. And that's true on, on, on both occasions where, where they uh, rebel as a result of that. It's really interesting in the 1770 case because the their preferred candidate finds out that he's rejected and goes off and sets up his own school and takes quite a few of the pupils with him. We're talking about the masters and the pupils and relationships between them. And one of the things we spoke about in the last episode was in some ways you can view this as a little bit maybe of an intra-elite battle. Because often the the students are from wealthier and more socially superior backgrounds than the masters sometimes. And and so I suppose the other sort of missing piece of this jigsaw is, well, what about the parents? So what do the parents feel about this? Do the parents take the side of their, their boys and say, you know, they've got every right to be behaving like this? <laughs> or do the parents say to the boys, hang on a minute, you're going too far. Uh, you, you, you know, they're, they're on the side of the, the, the grown-ups in the room. On the whole the parents tend to be pretty supportive of the schoolmasters. There's a really famous anecdote concerning the, the Marquis of Granby. Uh, his sons flee home following their involvement in the 1768 Eton Rebellion. And they're delighted because their fathers makes a big fuss of them and he offers to take them out to the theatre that night. And he says to them, yes, you're going to go there tonight for your own pleasure. And tomorrow you shall return to Dr. Foster to be flogged for mine. Ha! Ha! Oh no! What is it with all these uh, all these one-liners from these authority figures? Okay. <laughs> I, I don't think you'll be surprised to know that the Duke of Wellington was also a great supporter of headmaster's authority. So he writes a letter to Keat, this Eton headmaster, following the 1818 rebellion. And he says to him... You have it in your power to frame such rules as you may think proper for the preservation of order in the establishment under your direction and to enforce them as you may think proper. And you may rely on my concurrence. And he sort of goes on to say, well, the parents don't like it. They can take their sons out and send them to a different school. And it's interesting because Wellington Wellington actually has first-hand experience of people rebellions because his his older brother Richard had been forced to leave Harrow because he he'd got involved in the 1770 rebellion at, at Harrow yeah well you no one you're not you're not surprising anyone there I think that Wellington was on the side of the headmasters that's that feels pretty 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 standard but I think there's another point you make don't you and again this would this would chime with the, the point you made in your previous episode about how none of this is really about maybe the French Revolution <laughs> which is that a lot of the, the students, they are very keen on winning privileges for themselves and rebelling against authority. But if anyone tried to rebel against their authority, they wouldn't be happy about it. <laughs> and I get that impression with Wellington, <laughs> that, that that might be the case with him as well. So there's, there's a lot of self-interest here, isn't there? Oh, definitely. And there's some really pitiful stories. There's one boy who's involved in 1793 rebellion at Winchester and his father's prep school headmaster 
And his father, so his father's based nearby and he hears about this rebellion going on and he goes to the school. And as you recall, the, the boys are, have the siege going. So they're inside the building and he's running up and down the wall outside, calling to his son, pleading with him to, to stop what he's doing. He's not successful in his pleas and, and the boys expelled as a result. And it has serious implications for, for the father's livelihood because people start to get withdrawn from his school because he's got this association with with the poor behaviour. And then he almost makes it worse in a way because he tries to appeal the decision. But of course, that means that more people become aware of it and it becomes uh, better known and 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 he's still not successful. You do get parents who, whilst to their kids, are very disapproving of rebellions, can be found to be secretly slightly proud of their children's spiritedness. Or suddenly sort of excusing some of their, their reactions in, in letters to friends. But I think parents on the whole are pretty good at presenting a united front with the, with the schoolmasters. That's interesting. And I, I wanted to just go back and one, one other thing I wanted to mention, which is you talked about the different, the different uh, tools available to the masters for addressing these, these, um, this disorder. And one of the, 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 the less violent tools they could use was essentially homework I guess and so often once the initial uh, initial violence has subsided and maybe there has been some flogging or whatever (laughs) but once the students back in class one of the punishments they'd set would be to order disobedient pupils to learn the works of Sophocles by heart at a rate of 50 lines per day. It's called an imposition it's interesting in a way that you often set these plays by Sophocles, which are about people rebelling, Antigone or whatever. Absolutely. These are these are also classic works of the origins, <laughs> if you like, of Western Western political philosophy, aren't they? Like, yeah. Which is interesting because it shows that their interpretation of those texts might be slightly different from what our interpretation is today. I think the thing you have to remember about these impositions, I mean, you might be tempted to think, oh, these boys were brilliant. They could memorise 50 lines of Greek a day for weeks on end. I think actually often with the impositions, they were meant to be too difficult to achieve right and what happens is that you you fail you you know you don't manage to learn your 50 lines and so the next day you've got to learn 100 lines and it's 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 actually a lesson in obedience and submitting to punishment and and another one that's almost quite humiliating and embarrassing in another way almost isn't it it's just trying to sort of pile on the, the the humiliation yeah but it also made me think in some ways you know, over at, we we had a previous episode about John Stuart Mill. Over at James Mill's house, when he was instructing John Stuart Mill, he wouldn't have set that as a punishment. He'd have set that as a reward, right? <laughs> he would have been like, okay, John Stuart, I want you to learn your 50 lines of Sophocles before breakfast as a treat, <laughs> right? So um, it did make me consider, in the previous episode we did on John Stuart Mill, his education, and he said at the end of his education how much more he'd learnt compared to his peers. And I thought, well, yeah, I can definitely see that, given that his peers, this is what's happening. They're in schools with this, 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 this you know, some of this kind of behaviour. And we talked in the John Stuart Mill episode about, I think the, the, his father would deny him lunch if he hadn't done his work. And at the time we were saying, well, that's not very nice. And you look at this and you think, well, yeah, but compared to compared to some of these punishments... <laughs> Um, it's really, really not that bad, um, relatively speaking. So those are, yeah, some of the ways the, the masters respond. You also um, talked about the parents and how the parents respond. And so what about the broader public? 
coming on to them. How do the broader public feel about these? And obviously, I think then as now, these schools have quite a lot of fame. You said that the the things are happening get written up in in newspapers globally across the empire. So what do the broader public make of it? Are they sympathetic to these young boys? Are they do they think they're self-indulgent and and uh, over dramatic? You know, what's their take on it? So I will talk about the broader public. I want to talk about somebody who I guess does not really represent the broader public briefly first, which is George the Third, <laughs> so the king. Okay, yeah, we'll start, with the start at the top, yeah. Start at the top. So, because so, he has an attitude about this all. He personally congratulates the headmasters of Harrow in 1808 and Eton in 1810 for their firmness in handling school rebellions. So, so he's clearly approving of the firm tactic and we'll sometimes go and visit schools to help bolster the headmaster's authority but he's also he does seem to be a bit of a stirrer (laughs) apparently when he meets Eton boys which presumably happened not infrequently with Eton and Windsor being so close his go-to question was have you had any rebellions lately (laughs) so I like to think he's egging on the boys on the side (laughs) but it does feel like it's capturing the imagination of a lot of people Wellington's commenting on it George the First commenting on it. People are aware of this. It's it's a big deal. Yeah, yeah. And then the newspaper coverage really shows that, you know, pe- people across across the country, across the empire are, are interested in this. And it's they're not all alumni. It's not all the old boy network. You know, people think these schools are important. And as for the newspapers, I mean, as you'd imagine, they, they, they don't all take quite the same tone and, and things do change over time. So prior to the outbreak of the French Revolution, I think the newspapers are a bit more inclined to be sympathetic to people rebellions they they often actually sort of talk about corporal punishment and that they think corporal punishment isn't really appropriate to be applied to older pupils and often they take quite a light-hearted tone in some of their reporting a lot of sort of punning and, and making jokes and it's it's something that changes once things in france get more serious and certainly once we're at war with france yeah so you can treat this you treat this as a bit of a joke and hijinks when it starts but then once it's maybe taken on a more more of a political character then actually suddenly people get a bit a bit more frightened about it and a bit more worked up about it i want to read a a bit of a letter this is from miss angelo and she's the daughter of the fencing master at eton and she's writing to a friend in the wake of the 1818 rebellion and she says i've been since we met in such a sad flurry so bilious so nervous so restless at night so full of the vapors the headache of fright. Ever since we have had that late, terrible riot, I wish that the boys would remain quiet. Then eight were expelled. Think how shocking, my dear. I declare it cost me many a tear. It's sort of tempting to go full Alison Steadman, Mrs. Bennett on that. (laughs) And you suggest that she's being hysterical about it. And it is easy to treat it as a comic topic. But for contemporaries, this is really quite scary. And as you're saying, the the, the schoolmasters, they have families living on site. And it's a little bit, isn't it? It is the sort of the world turned upside down in terms of these are the boys who are going to go on and, and run the country. And we'll talk about that at the end, you know, what they do end up doing. But they're from very powerful families and go on a lot of them to be very powerful. So I guess it can seem quite threatening 
if you think that that's that's how your future leaders are behaving. And it is worth noting that these pupils in these public schools, they're not treated the same way as boys of a similar age would be treated who were behaving in similar fashion. If you had a a pupil from the lower orders running around with gunpowder, they're going to be treated as juvenile delinquents. Oh, and and I mean, in this era, you'd surely be transported if you behave like that. I mean, and, and, and some of the things involve stealing as well. I mean, this is an era when the British state's incredibly, incredibly punitive when it comes to punishing property theft and, and enforcing property rights. You, you can literally get transported for, 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 for very minor infringements of that. Whereas some of these boys are going around stealing things or stealing things that belong to the master or stealing keys and they're not being transported, are they? No. And so partly it's it's their background is seen as vouching for them. So they're of, of good stock. So, you know, they can't really be proper wrong-uns. Partly it's that the schools effectively are authorities in, an, in their own right. So it's sort of left up to the schools to choose the appropriate punishment. But a large part of this is that behaviours that might be viewed negatively when being displayed by someone of a lower class are viewed positively when they're boys of an upper class. Behaviours like aggression. We still have this today. It's a slightly lesser extent with class, but it's still alive and well when we think about race and sex. A confident man is a bossy woman and all the rest of it. Okay, so that's that's kind of the sort of public take on them. But these rebellions do die away. So they sort of spring up in the 1760s, but they do die away as we move towards the middle of the 19th century. So, so why? Why do they subside? Why don't they carry on? In our last episode, I mentioned that I felt there's two interconnected causes for these rebellions. It's, it's the boys seeking to assert and preserve their independence at a time when schoolmasters are trying to extend their control. Also, this popular view of masculinity that values public honour and, and aggression. And some would argue that the schoolmasters are, are kind of successful in creating a new model in which they provide greater moral instruction and pastoral care. And a lot of people would hold Thomas Arnold, the headmaster of rugby, um, from the 1830s onwards. And we must really do a whole episode on Thomas Arnold. Definitely, A lot of people would put him as the key proponent of this. But I would argue that there's quite a lot of proto-Arnolds out there in the late 18th and early 19th century. And it's their attempt to change the way the schools are being run that is what's triggering these rebellions in the first place. And the solution which is derived and ultimately popularised by Arnold is that of a monitorial system where senior pupils are granted authority by the headmaster to maintain the order and the discipline among the boys in the school. And it's not quite a complete capitulation to the pupils, but it's certainly a a compromise. It's self-government by the boys and the boys maintaining quite a lot of their their independence unchecked. It's sort of codified and being overseen by the schoolmasters. But they're actually continuing to be quite privileged in the way they conduct themselves. So that's fascinating. So your, your, your sort of argument in the previous episode was that, in a way, you can see these rebellions as a bit of a war between these Victorian proto-Thomas Arnold headmasters who are trying to enforce a little bit of discipline on some very rebellious boys who are hewing to a sort of 18th century, very masculine view of life. And what you're saying is here that perhaps those those Victorian Victorian do-gooders win out in some ways but in other ways you could say well maybe they don't they maybe they the way they or the way they win out is by granting quite a lot of independence to to the boys just as as long as they use it right and I suppose my question there is you know do they use it right if you read Tom Brown's school days then you go oh it's all joy and Christian light and um, everybody's invested in being a, a wonderful human being and looking after all the 
the students in their control. Obviously, the counterpoint to Tom Brown's school days is the really famous 20th century series Flashman, <laughs> which is about the, the bad boy who gets expelled from rugby. <laughs> you know, do, do all the boys actually buy into this and treat the younger boys very well? Or do some of them just take that opportunity to use that, use that power in unpleasant ways? And later in the 19th century, isn't there some parliamentary fear that actually maybe these monitorial systems are not as as lovely as they might seem and they maybe are open to abuse by the older boys? Is that is that a possibility? Yeah, no, there's definitely some concern. There's a there's a quite few incidents in late 1860s, early 1870s of boys being very violent to to younger pupils in their care and schools really having to sit up and take notice of this and and realizing that having these schoolmasters that are there to teach their lessons in the morning but then go off to play golf in the afternoon (laughs) and and leave the monitors to it is is not really acceptable i mean in a way it's supported we're talking about masculinity it's sort of supported by this new victorian masculine ideal of of self-restraint these monitors are meant to be these virtuous upstanding young men who exercise self-restraint but i think often the reality does fall short of that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me a little bit, you have the, the this thing in, um, you know, the British constitution's uncodified and you have this theory of the good chap theory of government. <laughs> as long as we've got good chaps, we don't need rules. But then you think, well, uh, what's the line from the Federalist Papers? If, if men were angels, we wouldn't need government. <laughs> and men aren't angels <laughs> and that's why you need government. And what I find fascinating about all of these is, these are all absolutely classic issues, as I say, of, of political philosophy that have recurred again and again. Um, you, know, you go right back to the ancient Greeks and, and Sophocles. You look at the American American Revolution, Federalist Papers. And, and as I say, people maybe don't want to admit it and don't want to acknowledge it, but a lot of teaching <laughs> and a lot of what goes on in schools, there's a lot of similarities. <laughs> um, but it's, it's really interesting to, to see them here. Okay, well, so we're coming to the end now. So the re- rebellions have kind of died away. We've got a new sort of maybe cultural settlement that's that's going on, whether it works or not, but it's, it's definitely different. But what are the consequences for some of these rebels? So you've had the best part maybe of, uh, you know, a century <laughs> of, of some of these boys rebelling. You were saying earlier, if you get expelled, that could have a big impact on your life. But we're also saying, well, none of them were getting transported. It's not like you get a criminal record. What does happen to them in later life? Do they end up running the country? Are they expelled into outer darkness? What are the typical career paths for some of these rebels? What's kind of fun is that there's quite a number of them who go on to become romantic poets. That does not surprise me one little bit. I don't want, I don't want to overstate all the modern parallels, but it does feel the equivalent of you're a, you're a rebel now, you're a Just Stop Oil or an Extinction Rebellion person now, and you go on and you become a social media influencer. That feels like <laughs> that trajectory. And the most famous one here, isn't it? Byron. Byron's a little bit involved in this. And Robert Savvy, doesn't he get expelled? Yeah, so people don't know Robert Savvy so well now but he I mean he was poet laureate so you know but he's got a very interesting trajectory because he's a he's a youthful rebel and then he's a youthful romantic poet but then he he becomes relatively conservative as he ages doesn't he yeah well he goes on that familiar trajectory right so I mean I'm still waiting for yeah we're gonna see that with a few people maybe you know (laughs) maybe an area (laughs) Uh, we're waiting waiting for that that trajectory so um Robert Savvy maybe the most famous Byron does he get expelled or doesn't he well Byron's kind of an interesting case because lots of people want to implicate him in the rebellions at Harrow but he doesn't really, he leaves before the big rebellion breaks out at Harrow. But I think he is guilty in that he writes some very rude verses about the headmaster. And even though he's left, he 
circulates them with, with the people who are still at the school. So he's definitely provocative. And famously, when he does leave, he's mad, bad and dangerous to know, isn't he? So he is your, your classic example. Yeah, he's gone, gone on to be that famous, almost an early celebrity. He's like an early version of us, one of the first sort of celebrities, isn't he? And maybe some of that comes from his his career at school i think a lot of it comes from yeah and there's there's another chap who's not so well known walter savage landor but he's he's another one who's involved in, in in rebellions and all three of them end up leaving their schools under a bit of a cloud and it kind of kind of fits with their self-image you know sort of victims outsiders so byron is quite happy he identifies himself as a turbulent schoolboy. and then this other chap walter savage lander um he's proud of being asked to leave rugby and says it's it's my fierce defiance of all authority and a refusal to ask for forgiveness and he later reflects we thought ourselves men when we were only boys but it made us the more manly when we grew up (laughs) well the other the other quotation i was thinking of there was uh, the one by wordsworth so wordsworth I mean, he goes to grammar school. I don't. He goes to a very famous public school. But Wordsworth, like Savvy, has that journey where he's um, he's 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 very radical to begin with, and then becomes more conservative. But he looks back at his youth and he says, "Bliss was it in that dawn to be alive, but to be young was very heaven." So there's a lot of looking back on it with nostalgia at these uh, revolutionary times they had as as youngsters. And and the other interesting romantic poet is is Shelley. And Shelley was at Eton, and Shelley actually, this is terrible, but he was. He was bullied really badly. A real outsider again. Yes, and they would call them, I think, his, the people who bullied him, they'd, they'd deliberately pick on him and call them Shelley Bates. they deliberately try to bait him. And so maybe that's, yeah, more, more evidence for your idea that perhaps some of these rebels who had political, political leanings, those political leanings weren't shared by everyone else. Um, so Shelley was a, a real outsider. So, okay, so one career path. If you're having trouble at school or you're having rebellions at school, one career path is to be a romantic poet. What? But what else? So if you want to be a bit more conventional, have a bit more of a mainstream career, ex- expulsion could prove more troublesome. But not for everyone, because another very famous ringleader of the rebels is Sir Willoughby Cotton. And he's a ringleader of the very big uh, rugby rebellion of 1797. And this is the one that involves blowing up the headmaster's door with gunpowder. So this is quite a big deal. And it doesn't seem to have affected him at all. He gets expelled. But a few years later, he joins the Scots Guards. And he has this very prestigious military career. <laughs> like, you know, he's serving under Wellington. He pops up in a Flashman novel. So you could clearly get away with it. So what's interesting is there are many examples of people whose wealth, social connections, or sometimes personal ability means that they are successful in spite of being expelled. I mean, he's a, he's a, he's a star, he's, he ends up as a, you know, a few years after he's expelled, he ends up as a staff officer to Wellington. I mean, there's part of me, is it, where you were saying, you know, that the masculinity, the assertion of masculinity involved in these rebellions, actually, maybe people in the army, they think, well, that's the kind of guy we want. We want someone who's going to be aggressive and, and, and violent. <laughs> is, is, it, is it in some ways, um, you know, a, a good thing? Yeah, I think, and especially the ones who are expelled in the 18th century rather than as we move into the 19th century, and I think attitudes begin to shift again, you know, as a result, you know, events with France getting a bit more serious. Yeah, it is a bit more forgiving earlier on with some of these people. I mean, as is ever the case, the people who are really reliant on the opportunities offered by the school, the pupils who are there on scholarships and are relying on their academic ability to lead to upward social mobility really can come unstuck if it all goes wrong. 
And it's interesting because it's reflected in the schools where the rebellions are most common. So St Paul's, which has all of its pupils at that time drawn from a slightly sort of lower status background. You still get this referred to today, don't you? George Osborne is oik compared with uh, his, his friends who went to Eton. I think people who go to St. Paul's have a slightly different version of it. <laughs> they might say some nasty things about the um, intellectual capacity of people at Eton, but, but carry on. At St. Paul's, there just aren't any rebellions in this period at How all. How interesting. Because it's too risky, basically, for those for boys of that background. The reputation St. Paul's has today is, is, is quite academically elite. Hmm. It's not so, just socially elite, it's academically. Is that because they're all too busy studying algebra? Is that it? Is that my theory? You know, they're, they're, they're just, you know, got their noses in books all the time. They haven't got time to be rebelling. You think it's a social status? In the 18th century, I think it's definitely to do with the social status. Yeah, yeah. They're not posh enough to get away with it. Yeah. So ultimately, if you're posh enough, there's stuff you can get away with. And if you're not, you probably can't. So there's eight boys expelled from Eton in 1818. And six of them are what is known as oppidans. So they're not scholars. And they're as a rule that they're, they're richer pupils, right? And all six of them are fine. And actually, a number of them manage to, to get into university or join the services. Some of them have to wait a little while first. So there's a bit of a washing of one's reputation that goes on. In fact, one of those boys, he, the family are friendly with, with Southey, and Southey offers a lot of advice, having, having been there. And they, they get him a private tutor for a few years. And the private tutor ends up being able to secure him a place at Exeter College, Oxford. And that private tutor is none other than Thomas Arnold. Oh, wow. Who goes on to be the head at rugby. But two out of those eight are collegers or scholars. And they just disappear entirely from the historical record. I mean, I I can't promise that they had awful lives as a result of their expulsion, but, but they certainly don't go to university and there's no record of any military service. So, you know, things do close off. Oh, gosh, that feels quite tragic. So they've been egged on by their wealthy mates. And their wealthy mates carry on fine, life is good, and then they're just cast into the outer darkness. Yeah, and and people realise that at the time. So we've got the diaries of Keat, the headmaster at Eton, and his sister, Margaret of Brown. And she, she, yeah, she's really worried about these colleges rebelling. She's really worried because she knows that the implications for them are going to be more serious. I was just going to wrap up by talking about those two boys who were expelled from Merchant Taylors in 1796. For the flag. Yeah, for the flag. These two little Republicans. Yeah, okay. They were on the cusp of gaining scholarships to St. John's College. Right. And their expulsion from Merchant Taylors completely closes off that avenue for them. Oh, And they have much more limited options. And what's interesting is that they both end up picking professions which take advantage of being educated, but don't require university. So one of them ultimately becomes an attorney. So he goes into the law and the other one becomes a surgeon. So that's another profession where you don't need a degree. You're learning on the job. Not an utter disaster, but it is a change of course for both of them. They would have had different lives. Well, that is absolutely fascinating. So what you're saying is it's, it's the rich will get the gravy, it's the poor will get the blame. <laughs> Quite is right. That what, is that what we're finishing? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, Lizzie, this is absolutely fascinating. I'm so glad you've done this for us and given us this um, this, this tour through this bits of history and, and lots more bits we should be, we should come back to as well. You know, Thomas Arnold, Flashman. Um, <laughs> Some of those 20th century rebellions as well, the, the Romilly, the Romilly brothers. We should come back and, and look at some of those as well because it's a fascinating, fascinating a bit of history. So that's brilliant. Thanks, Lizzie. Thanks for humouring me. <laughs> no problem. And everyone else, hope you enjoyed it. 